Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm so pleased to welcome back Dr. Doug Johnston, President Emeritus and founder of the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy. Prior to founding ICRD, Dr. Johnston was the Executive Vice President and COO at CSIS, where he also chaired the Preventive Diplomacy Program and the Maritime Studies Program. It's really great to have Dr. Johnston back at CSIS. I'm here to have a conversation with him about his most recent book called Mountaintops and My Ties, Scaling the Heights Towards a Higher Calling. Dr. Johnston is also known for, I think, one of the most important books of the 20th century called Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft. And I hosted a 25th anniversary conference on his book, Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft, in 2019. But we're here today to talk about his book, Mountaintops and My Ties, Scaling the Heights Towards a Higher Calling, which recalls his experiences in, it's, it's in many ways a memoir, tracking his life from the U.S. Naval Academy to his journey to becoming a trailblazer in faith-based diplomacy. Doug, congratulations on the book. Welcome back to CSIS, and thanks for being with us here today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dan. So, Doug, walk us through a little bit your background. You were here at CSIS for more than 10 years, I think at least a ten, at least 12, I think longer than that. And you've served in a number of roles in the public and private sectors. Tell us your journey about how you got to ICRD and its founding. Well, it actually started with my hiring uh, in 1987, and I was... Uh, at the time, I was making more money than uh, the center was offering, so I uh, cut a deal. And the deal was that uh, even though the center theoretically was under my total control, I asked that I be able to pursue a project out of my own office. And that office, was the, uh, the project was to uh, explore the positive role that religious or spiritual factors could uh, play in actually preventing or resolving conflict while advancing social change based on justice and reconciliation. So uh, they agreed to that, and uh, it was one of the first initiatives that I got underway after uh, coming on board. Over the course of the next seven years, a group of us, a number of world-class scholars and practitioners, uh, participated in the project and came up with the book that you just mentioned, Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft. Uh, that book uh, actually received global acclaim, and because of that, I was inspired to uh, walk the talk, which consisted of uh, putting in place a new program in preventive diplomacy at CSIS. Our first initiative uh, in that regard was actually teaching religious clergy and laity in the Balkans uh, the principles of conflict resolution. This was taking place while the war was going on. And so at one point, uh, the president, David Abshire, took me aside and said he was concerned uh, uh, about the board's uh, fiduciary liability if something should happen to any of our uh, people and uh, urged me to steer clear of war zones. 
And uh, so we, uh, we did that, but that caused me to think that maybe I needed to uh, find a different setting. And I, I left the, the think tank, as it were, to form a do tank called the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, where board members would know from day one that going in harm's way was uh, part of what we did. Well, it's really, really fascinating. And so tell us why you wrote this new book, Mountaintops and Mai Tais. And why did you write this book? And what's the message you're hoping to convey with this new book? Well, uh, actually, uh, the reasons for the book were twofold. Uh, first was for a number of years, I'd always thought that I'd like to uh, one day write a book that captured uh, all the funny things that happened in my life's journey, uh, which were a considerable number. <laughs> and I uh, more recently had received uh, encouragement from uh, friends and colleagues to tell the story of uh, ICRD, uh, how it came about and uh, what uh, accomplishments it was able to achieve. So I, I actually attempted to blend the two. And uh, it's a bit of an eclectic mix, but I think, it, uh, I think it hangs together. I think it hangs together very, very well. Could you talk about today's challenges in religion and statecraft? I want to come to some of the stories in the book, but I just think it's a, a really interesting moment. I, you, I mean, I think you could argue that, you know, there, the, this continues to be a very relevant dimension to how we look at the world. I think we, we're quite oblivious of us to us in some ways or blind to it in the West. And I'd be curious about how, if you look out at the world through that lens, what you see. Well, what you see is uh, the fact that we've, for much of our recent history, have uh, had a blind spot when it comes to uh, including uh, spiritual and religious uh, factors in our equations. Uh, we missed the boat uh, in any number of instances. Uh, the uh, takeover by uh, Khomeini of Iran in 1979, even going back to the Vietnam War, what the religious dynamics were behind the Buddhists uh, setting themselves on fire and what was going on uh, just wasn't really being included in a meaningful way. And so that was uh, the purpose of that first book was to sound a wake-up call to our foreign service that uh, religion, is, it's important, uh, even if you're not religious yourself, it's important to do the, your homework to understand how religion informs the worldviews and political aspirations of others. And you mentioned uh, the practice of faith-based diplomacy, which is what we do. And uh, that means really integrating those uh, religious uh, considerations uh, into uh, uh, realpolitik discussions, if you will. For example, in my early discussions with the foreign minister of Sudan, when we were trying to uh, persuade them that what we were suggesting was in their own best interest to do. And those conversations, I would look for convenient opportunities to uh, to suggest, uh, make a re helpful reference to the Quran or, or how the prophet might have dealt with such a situation or even what Jesus might have to say about it. And uh, my that's the, in its most rudimentary form that, that would constitute faith-based diplomacy. But whether you're practicing in that form or any number of other manifestations, you find that the Muslims particularly open up because uh, unlike us, they don't separate the religion and politics. They seek to integrate them because their goal, ultimate goal, is to form a community on earth that is pleasing to Allah. 
So uh, uh, they're, they're actually very suspicious and uncomfortable in dealing with secular constructs. So how should people in the West, what I would describe as, you know, think about religiosity in the developing world? I think you're right. It's considering that religion is the central organizing principle or central axis for most people, the vast majority of people in developing countries. Well, even as uh, religion is fading a bit here in the West, it's, as you uh, imply, it's not fading elsewhere. In fact, it may be becoming more amplified as time goes on. And uh, until we uh, recently started uh, taking this into account, we used to deal with uh, the world on uh, a secular basis. And uh, even as the religiosity fades here in the West, we can still do that in many other countries. But uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we need to stop using our separation of church and state as a crutch for not doing our homework to understand how religion informs the worldviews and political aspirations of others. And uh, that's homework that uh, doesn't come easily, but it's very doable. I would argue perhaps that we're in a post-Christian West and that it's particularly difficult for, if I can put it this way, upcoming generations of folks who are going to be in the intelligence community, the development community, the diplomacy community, even the military in this country, and certainly in Western Europe or Japan, and certainly in many OECD countries, to sort of look out at the world in this way I would argue it's becoming even more difficult. And how is there is this is this require sort of additional training in terms of our public policy programs? Is this require how we think about you know how how should we think about in essence giving people this capacity or this ability to think in these terms? Well, for one thing, I would hasten to point out that uh, in the 22 years that uh, ICRD has existed, uh, we've always uh, had opportunities for interns to uh, join in the fray. And uh, we have intense competition for those intern slots, which are unpaid, like most interns in Washington. Uh, But the enthusiasm amongst youth of uh, understanding how you know, they, they understand that if we don't figure out better ways to resolve our differences than going to war, we're just never going to realize our full potential as uh, uh, human beings. So they get tremendous satisfaction out of trying to apply these principles and see how they work, and, and they do work elsewhere. To some extent, as a result of that first book, uh, over time, it took uh, almost 15 years, but uh, it's the State Department. They have... Uh, uh, initiated a and put into place an office in uh, religion and global affairs, uh, which has been reaching out across all the regional bureaus and the others to try to take advantage of where, of engaging religious leaders in the pursuit of our foreign policy goals that we might be uh, nursing ourselves. And it's very workable, uh, what, and, it, and it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with whether or not you're personally a believer. I think it helps if you are in the sense of understanding how faith drives action, because that may be quite a stretch for folks who are uh, agnostic, if you will. But for a long, long time, I've been involved with the National Prayer Breakfast here in Washington, and uh, it's really not uh, religious uh, 
you, you find that when people are asked if they're religious, they'll usually say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, which means that there's, uh, they're not ready to kiss it off completely. <laughs> and, uh, and it's that spirituality, for example, in my involvement with the National Prayer Breakfast, which the goal is to, you know, uh, in the spirit of Jesus, to sort of transcend all religious boundaries and getting people to work toward peace and especially for uh, helping the poor. So I think there's an awful lot of, of that kind of attitude that permeates uh, much of society today that just needs to be captured and reinforced, build upon it, don't try to control it, because then you would uh, uh, discredit it with your own political agenda. But I think it's very doable, Dan. So, Doug, talk about some of the, you've done some very significant work in a number of country contexts, as you talk about, in mountaintops and Mai Tais. And talk first about your experiences in Pakistan. I found this really interesting. Yeah, Pakistan is a very interesting one. For a number of years there, eight years exactly, we were reforming the madrasas, uh, the religious schools that gave birth to the Taliban. And when I say by reforming, I mean expanding the curriculums to uh, include the physical and social sciences uh, with a strong emphasis on religious tolerance and human rights, uh, particularly women's rights, and also to transform the pedagogy to... Uh, include critical thinking skills, because in these tradition-bound tribal cultures, there's not a lot of room for creative thinking. So we were encouraging that as well. Let me back up for a moment, but uh, few in the West are mindful of just what an incredible history these madrasas have. Back in the Middle Ages, they were absolutely without peer as institutions of higher learning in the world, and it was only Western exposure to them that led to our own university system in the West. And you would be surprised at uh, how many of the traditions and mores of academia trace their roots back to the madrasas, all the way from uh, wearing tassels uh, and robes at graduation to funding chairs in a given discipline. It just, it goes on and on. And uh, hardly anybody knows where all that came from, but that was the source. But then under uh, the impact of British colonialism, they were fearful of losing their uh, Muslim identity. So these madrasas sort of uh, purged everything that had to do with secularism or the West to the point where the vast majority of them now are about rote memorization of the Quran and the study of Islamic principles. So uh, we've been able to, to seize upon that history in inspiring the change that we've been after. Now, over those eight years, we engaged uh, about 3,000 madrasa leaders and uh, faculty from uh, approximately 1,600 madrasas. Now, there are uh, more than 20,000 madrasas total, so that's just the tip of the iceberg. But I must say that the ones that we engaged were in the most radical areas of the country. So we penetrated a lot of extremist strongholds in advancing this work. And one of the things that was one, a great surprise to me was when you get past, work your way past the uh, hostility and rage and engage these folks, not only do they get it, but many of them become champions of what you're talking about at great personal risk to themselves. And as I've pointed out, the State Department, who uh, 
about five years, they were sort of pretending we didn't exist and, and not supporting us morally or any other way. At one point, they sent a contingent over to uh, ICRD and said, we want to develop our strategy around your work, because what they f- came to finally understand was that, well, bombs and bullets have their place. If you're interested in draining the swamp of terrorism, that's not the way to go about it because it just begets more terrorists uh, through the cycle of revenge that gets created. But if you really want to drain the swamp, you've got to win hearts and minds, and that becomes contagious, and that's the way to do it. And uh, they finally saw the light, and and, uh, we, at one point, the extremists represented such a threat to our work that we uh, engaged a, uh, we had developed the legal framework two years earlier for a, uh, an indigenous NGO that we would one day staff up and turn the baton over to. And, and when we came under real fire from the extremists, uh, we did do that and passed the baton and uh, the work went on uh, just as before, but it was safer because we had cut the umbilical to the West. And the reasons for our success, I think, are quite interesting there because uh, everybody else had failed, particularly the government of Pakistan. But we engaged these madrasa leaders in such a way that they felt it was their reform effort and not something imposed from the outside. Uh, secondly, we inspired them with their own heritage. Uh, few of them knew of, uh, of this uh, history that I mentioned earlier. And finally, we we also uh, uh, grounded all suggested change in Islamic principles so they could feel they were becoming better Muslims in the process, and, and in fact they were. And there was a fourth element as well, which I didn't mention very often, but it bowled them over whenever I did. But we uh, worked from a posture of total humility because we were very mindful that the seeds of jihad had been planted by the West in the madrasas in the first place in order to grow holy warriors to evict the godless Soviets from Afghanistan. So we were, we were just now reaping the unintended consequences of that strategy. So they've, they're doing what we taught them, they've just changed targets. It's really sobering, it's really helpful. Do you think over time, Doug, that in places like Pakistan, we'll see a full reform of all the madrasas? Are you optimistic? I am, uh, just because in the process of uh, doing our work, we uh, established a very close relationship with the National uh, Madrasa Oversight Board, which are the top uh, religious leaders of the four sects that sponsor these schools in Pakistan. And, uh, and one of the things that we did along the way was we took them to, uh, we brought them over to the United States to see how Islamic education was handled here, but we also took them to Turkey and Egypt to see how uh, these uh, other Muslim countries were handling uh, their religion. And they went with an attitude, you know, what can these secularists teach us religious purists? But uh, they came back quite humbled because they found out that uh, that the madrasa students in these other countries could not only handle religious questions every bit as effectively as uh, Pakistani madrasas, students, but they also could, uh, they could handle contemporary problems because they were receiving uh, education in the arts and sciences and this sort of thing. And so they, they really became captives of, of this whole reform idea to the point where the leader of the, um, the strongest of these sects, the Diobandis, came up with the idea of creating a peace textbook 
uh, for all madrasas across all sects. And uh, I was seeking to uh, get the funding to develop uh, this book uh, from the State Department. And I, I told them, I said, look, this is an opportunity to put the toothpaste back in the tube because we, uh, you know, back when we were fighting, doing the Afghanistan thing, the uh, U.S. government had engaged the University of Nebraska in a, a $92,000 contract to create textbooks for the madrasas that do plant these seeds of jihad, if you will. And so I said, you know, here's a chance to take things in the opposite direction. And uh, state bought in on it, provided the funding. We used uh, madrasa scholars and uh, and other Islamic scholars uh, coming up with the, the textbook. But th that book is so good that I would be delighted if uh, American students were required to, <laughs> to go through it, uh, and anybody else in the world, because it really does emphasize all the right things. This is great. This is, it's so inspiring, Doug, what you've done. I mean, it's an, it, you've, in essence, I would argue that you helped create an entire field of study. If I look at the back of your book, you have a, a quote from Dr. Scott Appleby, the dean of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, you know, that basically says that you really have helped open up and create kind of the religion, conflict, and peace building field. So I, I just think the, the work you did, the book, the work you did at CSIS, and then most importantly, your efforts at ICRD are an incredible legacy. And I think the fact that the State Department has created a, a an Office of Religion and Global Affairs I don't think they're the only institution that's done that. I think as speaks to the to the toiling in the vineyards for so many years on this very important topic. And I would argue it's even more important than it was even when you wrote the book in the late 90s for all the reasons we could both list. So I think it's really quite useful. So I, I want to congratulate you on this new book, Mountaintops and, and Mai Tais by Douglas Johnston, Jr., it's called uh, Scaling the Heights Toward a Higher Calling, which is the, is the subtitle. So I just think I want to um, leave you with, and I think your higher calling, Doug, was to work on this really complex set of issues, bringing the various dimensions of your, your life and your work and your studies to this really important field and, in essence, creating a new field. So I, I want to congratulate you on that. I want to congratulate you on your book. I'm really happy to have hosted you on my podcast today. I think this is really, uh, really important stuff. So thank you so much for for being with us today. This is really great. I encourage everyone to go out and read Doug Johnston's new book, Mountaintops and Mai Tais. Thank you, Dan. Hey, listeners. Greg Poland here, director of the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Just wanted to let you know that we're launching a new podcast on Thursday, April 14th, called Southeast Asia Radio. I'll be joined by my good friend and co-host, the brilliant Alina Noor, Director of Political and Security Affairs at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Hi, everybody. Along with Simon Tran-Hudas and other members of the CSIS Southeast Asia team. Hi. Every two weeks, we'll highlight the most important news from the region and dive into candid conversations with leading voices on Southeast Asia and U.S. foreign policy. We'll cover everything you want to know about Southeast Asia. Geopolitics in the region, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, democracy and human rights, nothing is off limits. So join us for Southeast Asia Radio, April 14th, wherever you get your podcasts.
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 